Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. My guests today are two people I've been hoping to have on the show for quite some time now. They are Jeremy Bruscotter, who's a faculty member and professor in the School of Environment and Natural Resources at The Ohio State University, and John Vucetich, who's a distinguished professor at Michigan Technological University in the College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science. They joined me to talk about their recent article in Bioscience, which discusses the governance issues related to rewilding or the restoration of native species to their traditional ranges. I'll let them tell you all about it, though. So let's go straight to the interview. All right. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Excellent to be here. Okay. So we're going to be talking today about the concept of rewilding and its governance. Um, but I was hoping just for you know a little bit of an introduction, you could tell us a little bit about what rewilding means in this context. What are we, what are we talking about broadly? Sure. You know, uh, the easiest way to understand rewilding is um, to compare it with or relate it to the biodiversity crisis. And the biodiversity crisis has two really important facets. One facet is is widely appreciated and understood through statistics such as like 20% of all vertebrate species are threatened with extinction, thought to go you know, vanish completely from the planet in short order. That's bad news, of course, but there's another aspect or facet of the biodiversity crisis that's no less bad, but wildly underappreciated. And it has to do with the loss of geographic range for what otherwise are common species. Um, other folks have done research um, indicating that uh, more than half of vertebrate species have been lost from something like two thirds approximately of their geographic ranges. And so if a species is valuable because of the ecosystem services it provides, it can only provide them if it's living in the places that it used to be. And these losses of geographic range, what it ends up meaning is that large portions of the Earth's terrestrial surface, as we know anyways, um, have lost a great deal of their biodiversity. And so rewilding is trying to reverse that trying to put species back to the places that they used to be. That, you know, that, I think that provides us a great overview of, you know, that general approach. Um, you know, how is this actually typically done on the ground? You know, what sorts of things happen to uh, rewild an area, as it were? I think the easy answer there is is restoration. So restoring species that um, have been lost um, from some por portion of their range, whether whether or not um, that's the, the scale of it could be dependent upon um, the, the project. But, you know, it, it in large part, it's it's done through restoring species and, and their habitats. And these, and these restorations sometimes have two components to them. One would be like a technical and biological component, like how do we pull this off so that, you know, when we put the animals there, they stay and reproduce and become a stable population. What's no less important or perhaps even increasingly important with reintroductions are, again, what you might call the social component to the whole thing, which is what are the political obstacles or opportunities for reintroduction? What will uh, human residents living in the area think of all of it? Will they will they encourage it or be a bit of an obstacle to it? Those kinds of human dimensions are increasingly important. Yeah, we've talked about issues like that on the show before. You know, the the challenges that can be associated with doing something like you know reintroducing wolves into an area where you know there's a lot of livestock or people with pets. Um, so you know you face those sorts of human components and and elements as well throughout the process, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They never go away, right? They're always there. Even even those species that we've had forever, 
um, can be politically uh, costly or they can be problematic um, at times. And so, yeah, that that human element is always there. Okay, great. And what at what level is this typically governed? You know, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with the Endangered Species Act as a, a broad concept. Um, but at what level does this stuff actually take place? Um, you know, for instance, in the United States. John, you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it can occur at two, two different levels. One would be a state level and one would be a federal level. If a species is endangered in a legal sense and then therefore protected by the Endangered Species Act, then the federal government uh, typically plays the role for restorations and reintroductions and that sort of thing. A lot of support from state governments, but the federal government would tend to be the kind of leading agency there. Um, but there are species, especially when it's when the main interest is uh, to provide a hunting opportunity and for a species that's not considered legally endangered. Um, so, for example, in the state that I live in, in Michigan, a few decades ago, there was an interest to hunt moose, which are not an endangered species. And in that case, it was the state of Michigan, the state government that was responsible for uh, bringing moose back. So it goes both ways, and uh, but I, one of the things I implied, but could say more clearly here, is that when it's when it's a genuine conservation endangered species type issue, it's often been the federal government, and when it's more for recreational hunting or some other kind of uh, reason or opportunity, then it's more common that the state government is playing the leading role. Okay, great. And should we talk a little bit about, you know, the the concept of range within the Endangered Species Act versus, you know, the current range concept versus the historical range? Uh, you know, the Endangered Species Act, I take it, mainly supports species in their current range, right? Yeah. You want to go for that one, Jeremy, or start us off? Well, yeah, I can start us off, I suppose. I, I think perhaps the best way to say it is the Fish and Wildlife Service's current interpretation of, of a very important phrase within the Endangered Species Act, and that phrase is a significant portion of its range. Their current interpretation has been that range refers to current range. And I believe that's been the case um, really since the solicitor uh, for the Department of Interior issued a memorandum opinion. John, was that 2007? I'm going to forget what year that was. Sounds about right, yeah. In a while. Right around 2007, yeah. So, um, They've they've been they've gone through various iterations of that policy and have been um, effectively pushing that that sort of position. But if we were to go back uh, historically and look at the way the Endangered Species Act has been operationalized by those agencies, you'd see that, for example, when we listed gray wolves and we when we uh, listed grizzly bears, we listed them throughout their historic range. So so it, it, at least initially. Um, historic range was considered range from the purposes of listing a species. And so this is a more recent development that the Fish and Wildlife Service has sort of backpedaled on this particular issue. And, and I think Jeremy gave a really wonderful like kind of technical summary of, of what's happening with as, this aspect of the law. I always like to share how uh, there's a really basic and plain language way of understanding the, the concern which is we don't know what an endangered species is. And it could be one of two things, depending upon these two interpretations of the law. One is that it could be a species that's at risk of global extinction, and that's all. And the Fish and Wildlife Service's obligation is to make sure that the species doesn't go extinct globally, and that's it. The other interpretation is uh, to say, well, all right, maybe an endangered species is a species that's 
not been doing well. And the real question is, how poorly does it have to be doing before some kind of special protection is required? And that, that idea of how poorly off does it need to be uh, may well be interpreted uh, geographically. In other words, by what proportion of lost range has that species experienced? And when we can understand as a society what that proportion of range is likely to be for most species, after which we'd say, yep, that species needs special attention, um, then that's a different way of answering the question. And um, yeah, anyway, anyways, we could go deeper down into that idea, but that's uh, that's at least cutting across the surface the way Jeremy described it technically and a little bit more conceptually uh, the way I explained it as well. And there's there's probably one other aspect that's that's important there, and and that has to do with the just the 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 politics of of that interpretation or what's implied by those two different um, versions that John just provided, right? And so on one hand, it's pretty obvious when a species is starting to become globally in danger of extinction, um, and and one might say, well, then. Uh, all we really need to do is conduct an appropriate population viability analysis and have some meaningful uh, designation as to how much risk we're willing to accept and then we can determine whether or not that's an endangered species. It becomes a lot harder to think about what's an endangered species and then re-envision where we're going to recover them when we start thinking about lost range. It's just It just makes the whole uh, process more challenging. And Jeremy, when you were sharing those thoughts, it made me, it just reminded me, it's something you and I have talked a great deal about, is that these two interpretations of the Endangered Species Act, they do correspond to those two facets of the biodiversity crisis. So if the biodiversity crisis is only about preventing global extinction, well, okay, well, that matches with the one interpretation that the Fish and Wildlife Service has been comfortable with for the ESA. But if the Endangered Species Act is no less about loss of geographic range, then the Fish and Wildlife Service's interpretation of the Endangered Species Act is not gonna do much to mitigate or even stem or slow down the biodiversity crisis. So a direct connection between understanding what exactly is a biodiversity crisis, what role does the Endangered Species Act have in, in, uh, in, in mitigating that? Yeah, that's right. And, and does this uh, you know level of complication have as a practical result an additional onus being put on state wildlife agencies to you know kind of manage this issue in their local jurisdictions? Jeremy, why guess launched on that one? Yeah, yeah. So I I I think that's one of the things that we effectively assert in this paper, and it's it's not really I don't think it's been part of the discussion, right? We haven't been thinking about um, state agencies as a means of mitigating. Uh, the biodiversity crisis. In fact, when I think most people think about state agencies, they think about the management of hunting and fishing opportunities, right? And and putting in place policies that make sure that harvest of whatever species is sustainable. And they don't think about, even though these agencies do in, in many cases have explicit um, uh, legal authority over those animals, um, we don't think about them as being a meaningful uh, player in the management of the biodiversity crisis. And that that really could be a problem. And is it to some extent also a missed opportunity? Well, I think from my perspective, it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a missed opportunity in, in so much as we now, what what's, we're revealing is, you know, um, for, oh, for several decades now, we've seen a slow uh, decline in uh, in the proportion of people within a state that hunt and fish, and um, you know, not falling off any sort of cliff or anything, but just sort of a slow decline. 
and um, and that creates uh, that's created a lot of uh, concern in state agencies because their funding is so tied to that uh, to the excise tax that's placed on sporting equipment um, through the Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson acts and um, so you know so anyways so that decline is is um, in part related to this uh, idea that people's values in the United States have been changing. And um, and so we are valuing things, we're valuing wildlife in effectively uh, more alive today than, um, for example, just for the purposes of consumption through hunting and fishing and trapping and those associated activities. So people are, are appreciating wildlife um, for the benefits that they bring. Um, they want to see them managed um, in different ways, and one of those ways is they'd like to see more, um, and this is what our research shows, is uh, to see uh, restoration prioritized um, uh, more uh, within those state uh, wildlife agencies. And so there's an opportunity here in so much as um, to the extent that state agencies want to move beyond that historic or traditional constituency of, of serving hunters, anglers, and, and, and trappers. Um, they have an opportunity to basically satisfy the desires of uh, new constituencies, right? And um, and so, so yeah, there's there's a definite opportunity for agencies to get involved and do something that that people basically say they like and say they want. I, th I think there's um, multiple ways of seeing the same thing. And Jeremy, you described one of the ways, super important way to see it. And, but I think the other way to think of it too, and this is kind of riffing off, especially that, is there a lost opportunity or is an opportunity to be had with respect to the um, actions of state government? So the other way to think of it is that um, for right or for wrong, the federal government in the Endangered Species Act, man, man, the, the federal government is not exercising the Endangered Species Act in a way that can really meaningfully mitigate the biodiversity crisis, they're just not. If they change in the future, who knows? But they've they've taken this tact for about twenty years now, and so I think uh, one way of viewing it is, if we're going to really do well on the biodiversity crisis in the United States, it will require that the states step up. Um, and so, and and again, that's that's no less important than the way that Jeremy was framing it, uh, because just both things are true at the same time, and 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 even just. Um, uh, you know, I think for my part, it's just it, Jeremy saying the same things just a second ago. People are different now, um, and and state governments probably have to understand that they serve not just hunters, but that they serve all the constituents in their state. And a large share of their constituents think that restoring biodiversity should be their number one priority. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've both covered uh, covered my segue for me. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about, you know, the survey that uh, you shared in the article and its results, because, you know, it was, speaks a lot to the values that are held by, you know, those who are constituents in various states. Um, you know, who did you talk to and, and what sorts of things did they respond with? So, so Jeremy, myself and our colleagues, we uh, conducted this survey. And the motivation of the survey is because there's a group of us that we're working with to understand um, the prospects for restoring cougars to the northeast part of the United States. And so the survey involved a, a number of questions about people's attitudes about cougars, but there was one question and a kind of couple questions that were all wrapped around um, about what people thought states 
obligation, state government's obligations were towards restoring biodiversity as well as other things. And anyways, that's a little setup. And anyways, from there, Jeremy, do you want to take it away, the details of the question and how we asked it? And yeah, effectively, we, um, we, we, we brainstormed. Um, uh, and and I, I say we, this was a, a relatively large group of people that have uh, expertise in um, in how agencies function. And, you know, we said, what are the sort of main things that state agencies do and are known for doing? And um, and then we asked uh, respondents to um, to rank these effectively priorities. So we basically said, you know, what should your your state agency be working on? What would you prioritize? And um, and we gave them a list of uh, six different priorities and asked them to rank them and um, and those included things um, like management of existing habitats um, and and even uh, promotion of uh, hunting and, and fishing um, and one of those items happened to be the restoration uh, of locally uh, extinct. Uh, flora and fauna and that was the item that um, about two and a half times as many folks chose that as their top priority uh, than any other uh, priority in the list so um, it was uh, it was a little bit surprising um, you know we we kind of had an inkling that that might be the case but we were surprised by the extent to which it was the case I suppose is one way of saying it yeah. And, and again, I think some of the surprise came from the fact that well, one of the things that we had in the list that people could prioritize, hey, this is the number one thing that, that we think a state agency would do would be like to provide more recreational opportunities. And because people think that government should be serving their interests and not in a shameful sort of way, but that's just one of the things government can be for. Uh, I think we would have expected something like that to, to do much higher, but it really was kind of a an other-centered kind of focus. Hey, restoration of biodiversity is is what should be really key here. You know, the other thing that was important to us in the survey is that um, it's it's not only that we came to understand what the general public thought about these priorities, but we also looked at different segments of the public. And one of the segments that we looked at um, is what it is that hunters think. So we, in the survey, we also asked people, do you self-identify as a hunter? And they could answer the question, not at all, or somewhat, or strongly, or very strongly. And the reason we wanted to know what hunters thought of this is because many state agencies uh, take hunters to be their like most important and primary constituency. So if, if hunters thought differently, that would be something you'd want to know. But if, if hunters thought the same as the general public, that would be a big deal. And, and one of the things that we found is that even people who identified the most strongly as hunters, even they identified restoration as the most important thing, more important than providing hunting opportunities. And so one of the things that is important is that all government agencies have a challenge of any kind of government agency of you know satisfying as many of their constituents at the same time. And so here we're start we have a few more results that speak to the same thing. Um, but here we're starting to see, hey, this is an opportunity restoring biodiversity where you can uh, do good by all of your constituents. And so that struck us as important. Yeah, and did you find that result particularly surprising? Because hunters, I would imagine, um, you know, might be a little uncomfortable with the idea of restoring large carnivores to an ecosystem that has a you know finite number of harvestable deer in it or something. Was that? I mean, was that a surprise when you found that? I think. Uh, well, I won't. I won't try to speak for John, but you know, he and I both do a lot of research in the West, um, and so and so we're familiar with this sort of tension um, that exists around large carnivores in particular. Um, in in 
and although I don't know that we have great research on this, I, I think we could say that um, that tension, at least in part, has to do with the hunting community being increasingly skeptical or, or concerned with the level of impact um, on populations of deer or elk, if you're further out west, um, of, of large carnivores and their effects on those populations. And, uh, and, and so it was, I think, surprising the degree to which that we saw support for restoration within the hunt, hunting community. I, um, I, I don't think for myself, I don't think um, I expected that. I was very happy by it, very pleased by it. But, uh, but yeah, it, it was a little bit surprising. Yeah. And, and then I think the, the one caveat that I would add to that is that, um, you know, the hunting community is like all communities made up of a lot of different people with a lot of different views. And when you are learning about the hunting community, say primarily through, I don't know, social media or the news, you can sometimes get a distorted understanding of what they, th what they think because you it's often that you hear the most extreme or most polarizing views. Those tend to be the loudest. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a, a kind of hunter that's fairly polarized, one that's fairly extreme. Their only interest is hunting and that's it. But um, I think it's quite an open question to ask, you know, is that what most of the hunting community thinks? I think this research shows that no, no, most of the hunting community is, far more caring and concerning of the natural environment than, than, than just that. So, um, yeah, again, so this is another reason I think the research is important to distinguish from what might be a stereotypical view or a polarized view that gets amplified on social media as opposed to what the community of folks really think. Okay. And, and broadly speaking, um, you know, did you find any uh, ideological breakdowns that, you know, had major effects on, uh, you know, people's favoring of, you know, restoration? Um, are, are there firm political lines being drawn in that way? Or are there any universalities? John, I'm going to leave yeah, this sure. one to you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when we asked people what their priorities were, again, restoring biodiversity, providing recreational opportunities and so forth, when we gave them that list, in the survey, we also asked them what their political orientation is. We asked them to identify themselves on a, I think it was a seven point scale from being liberal at the one end of the scale to being conservative at the other end of the scale and different shades uh, in between. And uh, sure enough, what we found is that regardless of whether a person identified themselves as liberal, moderate or conservative, all of these people uh, indicated that restoring biodiversity was most important. This is extremely important, this result, because as, 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 as you know, and as many listeners know, we live in a, in a society today where a lot of things are kind of politically polarized. We live in what, for lack of a better term, kind of culture wars, where sometimes people take up a view simply because they believe that's what you're supposed to believe if you're a liberal or a conservative. And, and here we see that that's not the case. And so I think that, again, state agencies can act in confidence knowing that if they start taking um, the restoration of biodiversity really quite serious, making it a top priority, they're not going to be alienating a particular um, segment of, of constituents on the basis of their political orientation. Folks are behind this. This, to me, was not a surprising result because Jeremy and I have done other work asking people what their views are of the Endangered Species Act. And that's another one that's really quite satisfyingly the case that people are wildly supportive of the Endangered Species Act regardless of their political orientation. And if we have an impression to the contrary, 
Again, it comes from social media, comes from lobbying forces in Congress, and it's just not representative of, of what most people think, um, or so the sociological research would suggest. Okay, so we've got this broad situation, which we have multiple constituencies, you know, across the political spectrum, across generations, and across interest in hunting, um, that are very interested in the you know restoration of biodiversity. They they view it as a top priority, um, and we have uh, state agencies that have at least historically tended to manage on the basis of hunting opportunity. Um, how do you how do you circle the square? How do you uh, get those state agencies to prioritize? Um, you know, the, the values that their constituents are uh, actually most interested in? You know, the, the, I think the first way to, to get action is to just make the results of the research that we're discussing known to state agencies. I think that state agencies can quite reasonably feel concerned that, oh, if they take this action or the other action, that they'll receive some opposition from some important stakeholder group. And I think our research removes that obstacle, lets them realize, no, this is this is in everyone's self-professed interest uh, that we move in this direction. So I, I think that goes a long, long ways. Um, otherwise, the changes that are required, these are difficult ones. They they have to do with the fact that this is a little bit beyond my exact area of expertise, but large institutions, they have momentum behind them. They're conservative in the sense that once they get going in a certain direction, it's hard to change the direction. And I, I think that's just falls under the banner of institutional change, what's required there. Sometimes that takes a bit of time. I hope we have the time because uh, biodiversity crisis is advancing quickly. Um, but in, in any case, the most important thing that I know of for advancing these issues in the real world is just um, being able to say, hey, everyone's on the same side on this one. Okay, great. And I think that's a fantastic note to leave it on. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure. Oh, it was a true pleasure to be with you. Thanks. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.